Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today on the show, we'll be talking about Oscar, a health insurance company that sells insurance to people who aren't covered by their employers. Joining us is CEO and co-founder Mario Schlosser. In our conversation, Mario talks about the challenges of entering a business sector that's rife with regulation and bureaucracy, about what really goes into setting insurance rates, and about his views on U.S. healthcare policy and how we could improve it. After the break, Mario Schlosser, co-founder and CEO of Oscar. Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today, we will be talking about Oscar, the health insurance company. With us is Mario Schlosser, CEO and co-founder of Oscar. Mario, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So the healthcare industry can be extremely confusing to people. Just to start off, can you tell us what does Oscar do? Where does it fit into the healthcare industry? We're a tech-driven, much easier to deal with health insurance company. I started the company in 2012, and uh, I was going with my wife through our first pregnancy and um, was just very annoyed with the lack of any kind of user interface to the healthcare system, really. Someone or something helping you navigate how to pick doctors for the right reasons, uh, how to what something will cost you over time, uh, what the quality of care is you should be able to expect, uh, to remind you of what you got to do in your own healthcare journey. Um, that entity or person to me didn't really seem to exist in healthcare. And so I started Oscar as a health insurance company, making healthcare easier for our members. Did it start out as a result of uh, ACA Obamacare creating these health markets, these exchanges, or, or was, was there some sort of regulatory or legislative change that opened things up for Oscar? So that was a big catalyst in the founding, but it wasn't actually the founding uh, elements. When we started the company in March 2012, Josh, the co-founder, and I had the first coffee, thought about the idea. We just were annoyed with, again, the lack of user experience in healthcare um, and with the high healthcare costs as well, just healthcare costs in the US being way too high. And um, we didn't really know too much about the way the system operates. And when we started researching how healthcare works, what kind of entities are in it, who acts under which particular circumstances. We realized kind of halfway through the year of 2012 that the ACA Affordable Care Act is coming and for the first time creates a market of health insurance or for health insurance where individuals could purchase directly from Oscar. And that wasn't the case until that point. Um, You really mostly in the U.S. had either insurance coverage through your employer or you didn't have any at all. Uh, And so we thought... For us, this was like the last drop in essence and really saying we got to do this at this point in time because this put us in a position where we could compete on a level playing field with these massive incumbents you have in the healthcare space. Um, big insurance companies have been around for oftentimes hundreds of years. No kidding. Some of these have been around for hundreds of years uh, and their claim systems and technology probably is equally old uh, because we could now sell to people initially even like us in New York City, uh, and we would know what we would want from a better insurance company. And that was a big catalyst, but not the original founding kickoff. Okay. So let's go back again to how this started. So it's not like you're you're going out to sell hats. This is a highly regulated (laughs) sector. This is a complicated sector that's dependent on legislation. It's a were you intimidated at all about entering something with so much red tape, so much regulation, so much legislation? It was certainly a, an undertaking that hadn't been really done before. Uh, we were 
So you have to get regulated and licensed in states, each state you operate in. And initially in 2014, we started selling the first insurance plans to members. We started in New York State, New York City to be precise. And uh, in New York State, there hadn't been a commercial greenfield health insurer in about 20 years or so. So people don't start insurance companies overnight and don't start them really um, with the backgrounds we had. I'm a computer scientist. I came at this from the engineering technology side and really thinking members deserve a better user experience in healthcare. So that was certainly very daunting. Uh, we at the same time thought that the system is so obviously so stupidly designed. Um, there wasn't really anybody in the healthcare system who had an obvious incentive to try to get my healthcare costs down, frankly, to get me to go to more efficient doctors and doctors with better quality outcomes. There wasn't anyone who would remind me of the next thing I have to personally do in my healthcare journey. And uh, so very obviously, there seemed to be a need for some entity like that in the healthcare system. And so it was this mix of absolute thrill that we could work on this and on something so big and potentially important, mixed certainly with the daunting nature of, um, okay, there was no blueprint for this. And uh, it had been a while since even the regulars in New York State had seen a new insurance company. And that was a to this day, that's, I think, the mix that propels us forward at Oscar. So give us a sense of how big you are now. Where are you offering plans? How many customers do you have? We are in uh, a couple of different states across the nation. We The biggest uh, cities where we are are New York City, Los Angeles, Austin, San Antonio, Texas, Nashville, um, Cleveland, with the Cleveland Clinic together and a plan there, uh, and a couple of additional places throughout the country. How many employees do you have? About a thousand. Are you profitable? No, not yet. How far away are you from profitability? A, a few years. We're going to run this in the way we've done this in the past couple of years, where we, on the one hand, want the core business to be doing well. So the core metrics, like the medical loss ratio we discussed earlier, to look the way those of other insurers would look, maybe even better in some cases, but where at the same time we would keep investing in new product lines, new expansions, and things like things like that. So next year, for example, we're going to offer offer Medicare Advantage plans for the first time. That requires investments. Um, if there's one thing people know about their health insurance, it's the rate they're paying. And I think people are very attuned to where that rate is and where it's going and what is it going to be next year. Can you tell us a little bit about what, in general, rates have been doing over the last few years and why they've been doing what they've been doing? Yeah. So health insurance premiums or rates are a direct reflection of the cost of healthcare in the US. And the cost of healthcare in the US is extremely high. We pay about 18% of GDP for our healthcare system. Any other rich country in the world pays about 11% at best. Switzerland, Germany, Japan, all countries with universal healthcare systems, not single payer systems, but universal healthcare systems where everybody has coverage, pay at least 35% less than we pay on a per capita basis. Uh, the cost is so high in the U.S. because the unit costs of care are very high because what it costs you when you go to a doctor, when you get a drug, when you get an MRI, when you're in the hospital is so much higher than what that comparative cost would be if you went to the hospital in Switzerland, which is counterintuitive. Switzerland's a great country and a beautiful country, but that's the way it is. And so um, that's been a trend of the past 40 years. 40 years ago in the 70s, the U.S. was sort of like um, in the middle of the pack as far as Western country healthcare system costs are concerned, and it's been on this 
inexplorable rise since those days and is now by far the most expensive. Um, when you look at the real wage increases that as a society we should have had since the 70s, then about two-thirds of those you should have gotten in your pockets have gone into the cost of benefits and therefore most into the cost of healthcare, just becoming so expensive. We went from paying 8% of GDP of our economy to now paying 18% again in the last 30, 40 years. So long story short, rates have gone up a crazy amount. And that has not really slowed down in the last couple of years either. The rates in the individual markets, in the Obamacare markets, have uh, had an additional rise on top of them because the markets have been unstable for the past couple of years. They're stabilizing now, but it hasn't been easy to launch this new insurance markets and to understand both for the insurance companies, the hospitals, the members in the markets, where is the right price to set here? Um, a little bit of math. Uh, the government thought in 2014 that about 20 million people will be in the markets. Uh, about 12 million people are in the markets. And the 8 million who aren't will likely tend to be the slightly healthier ones. Because some of them think it's too expensive to buy health insurance in the individual markets and therefore are not buying it. Um, and all those who are in the market likely have a good reason to be in. They have some disease or some expectation of uh, getting sick or something like that. And so as a result, the rates that you see today in the ACA marketplaces are higher than the rates you would have otherwise gotten if the market had been more stable, had been more... Um, uh, have been bigger. So one reason the, the rates here are so high is because the cost of care is so high. Why is the cost of care so much higher in the United States than it is in other parts of the world? Let me answer this uh, systematically. There are basically three reasons why it could be the case. Either we have higher risk, sicker people, older people, whatever, or we have um, people going to the doctor more, or we have higher unit costs, meaning when you go to the doctor, it costs you more than is the case in other countries. It's not the risk. The US population is a bit younger than the average population in the OECD, rich Western countries. It's um, not the utilization. Um, Americans go to the doctor a little bit less and are in the hospital a little bit less than is the case in other Western countries. It is all in the unit costs. A bypass surgery costs... Um, call it uh, $35,000 or so in the US, it will cost $15,000 in Switzerland. A drug will cost twice in the US as what the same drug will cost in Germany, for example. It's all in that. And that is a direct effect of the fact that there isn't either any um, regulatory control on these prices or any real competition around these prices. Germany, France, Switzerland, Singapore, they all basically come in and they set provider prices at certain levels. They basically the government say, says, government, this is what it's going to cost exactly to do this. Right. They will say, you can charge this for a hip surgery. If you can do it at this price, you know, get as rich as you can. If you can't, go out of business, basically. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it would be to really say, create transparency around these costs, um, give 
individuals a chance to sort of like look at this and say what where do I want to go for what particular cost that level? scares me when I'm shopping for like a for hips like I don't know anything about that I don't as a consumer yeah. in health it's that's asking me to understand a lot of things that are going to be hard for yeah. me to understand hard for me to make an informed decision yeah. about I uh, I don't disagree with you there I think that's um we can get a lot farther in transparency of cost and quality than we are right now and it will help some you know it will keep you from making some really uh, crazy choices like going literally for a routine thing like uh, cutting out a mole or something like that to a provider will charge you three times more and that is all totally possible in new york city okay i can give you a wide 3x spectrum of price for any procedure surgery um, utilization um, at the same quality basically uh, so we can get farther there with more transparency but i don't think you can put it entirely on the shoulders of the individual to make those decisions i think you're exactly right there I think the way that's got to work in the end is to make sure that um, insurers connect more closely and intensely with providers, with hospitals and doctors, and form more integrated entities. Um, that's what we've done with the Cleveland Clinic, for example. We have a I mentioned before a Cleveland Clinic um, health insurance plan called the Cleveland Clinic Oscar Insurance Plan. We split cost 50-50 and have an incentive to be more open, very open about the cost there and really drive the costs um as much as possible on both sides and the outcomes um, at the same time. And uh, that'll get you some other part of the way there. The reality right now is that some of the shifting of burden on you to make decisions has already happened. Deductibles this is what you pay out of your own pockets before the insurance company kicks in. There were have risen crazy amounts in the last couple of years. Um, there were maybe 5% of the population of the US on deductibles over $1,000 10 years ago. Now, 50% or more of U.S. employees have deductibles over $1,000. So you already will face that decision as to what you're going to pay, even though you often don't even know it. Um, or you're not aware of that necessarily. And we got to get at that by everybody becoming more transparent. The governments just put out a rule that forces hospitals to put out their so-called charge master. That's their high-level list of prices. And that's a tiny step in the right direction. But it also shows, again, how crazily Byzantine and unorganized, from a consumer point of view, the healthcare industry is. What you what that basically meant in practice is that the hospitals all kind of will send you an Excel file with a bunch of totally obscure codes that um, we had to build over a two-year period of time a um, data science model for to read those things in and simulate lots of different scenarios to actually turn them into a real price outcome. <laughs> so if you want to do two years worth of actual data science work, then you can take that file now and download it and make your own sense of it. But that isn't obviously where you can be asked to be as an end user. So more transparency is good, but there needs to be more cooperation, collaboration across the system to really make sure the price comes at the, at the right level. One more observation there would be that um, in Medicare, in Medicare Advantage, the U.S. government actually already is setting provider prices. The way Medicare works is it uh, tells the hospitals and the doctors, this is what you're going to get paid if you do X. And um, that is interesting because um, I can say this with my German accents. You know, obviously, the U.S. is a very um, freewheeling capitalist society, um, and there are many good things to that. Uh, this is one place where, despite all the rhetoric, even the U.S. healthcare system already is capping prices and is setting prices. And it's generally perceived to be one of the better functioning or best functioning parts 
of the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, here's another funny uh, anecdote at data points. The contracts insurance companies have with hospitals get oftentimes in shorthand measured in percent of Medicare. So when an insurer negotiates with a hospital, they will say, are we going to pay 200% Medicare or 250% Medicare? That's how they negotiate and to not be in these detailed spreadsheets all the time. And all of those rates, and those are the rates that Slate will pay, for example, or that um, you know, Bloomberg as an employer will pay, are at at least 150% Medicare or above, which is so crazy again, right? That's the free markets, the commercial players in the markets will all happily pay at least 50, 100% more than the government pays in this market. Um, and it's a, a sign again of how um, the kind of free market forces, uh, or put it this way, the the pressure on players to generate value in the space just isn't there. Nobody's pushing typically prices think down. competition is going to drive prices down, but here it is. And it's just not happening there. And it's just exactly. the opposite. It's the opposite, exactly. <laughs> in, in, some, in Medicare Advantage, where the private insurers come in, the prices fall below 100% Medicare. That's the one place, again, where it works. In some of these other countries you talk about, maybe are considered to have more efficient healthcare systems. How do people like doctors do there? Do they do better or worse than they do in the U.S.? How do people like you, health insurers, do yeah. in those countries? Do they do better or worse than they do here? Um, they all do well, I think, if they create value. I think if they, if you're a hospital and you're performing hip surgeries at a lower costs and a good quality, then what the government kind of pays you at, at, at cap, you're going to make money and you're going to expand. That's the case in Germany, France, um, other places like that. Uh, the U.S. insurance companies are some of the biggest com- insurance companies in the world, for sure. Uh, but that's because the U.S. system is so big. Um, the U.S. healthcare system, in dollar terms, I think is bigger than all other healthcare systems combined, as far as I know, in dollar terms. Not surprisingly, if you're a player in the system, you're pretty big as well. But the business is just as fine in other countries. You have private insurers, private hospitals across the Western world, um, and it works just fine. So um, I don't really see there much of an impediment to having a good business and entrepreneurial forces in other countries, even when rules work differently. The ACA has been a bit of a roller coaster um, since its beginning in terms of the, the rollout being a little complicated and confusing in terms of various court rulings over the year, in terms of the current administration's efforts to repeal and replace, as they put it. Can you walk us through a little bit of, of the history of the ACA and how Oscar has been affected by it and responded to that? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, when we started the company in 2012, we didn't know how the ACA worked. We had no idea it's even there. And I remember to this day when the Supreme Court in June 2012, I believe, decided that it's going to be constitutional, um, which was sort of like the last capstone in the process of getting the ACA launched. Uh, I emailed Josh and I said, for this idea we've been debating here, starting our insurance company, this seems like a big deal. There's a new thing coming out here, there's new markets being created. We should be in the middle of this. So it's been a hugely important catalyst for us. Um, when we went for the first time to the regulars in October 2012, we could already kind of tell that they didn't think the incumbent insurance companies in the healthcare space were clamoring to get into this new marketplace. Why would they? You're sitting fat and happy as an insurance company 
in selling to big employers, in having very long replacement cycles, in uh, you know selling to an employer a year and a half before launch, um, a new insurance plan, or just kind of like renewing the plan you already have. Any rattling of that cage with introducing competitive vigor and some end-user consumer pressure in this thing, why would they like that? And so we thought this is a huge opportunity of getting into the markets. And so the ACA was a good, important catalyst there. Then we launched and were right in the middle of all the instability um, that this market experienced for the, for the first at least three years of its, of its existence. And it's really two different kinds of instabilities. There is the basic instability you have in any new insurance markets. You have to imagine that we priced our own plans, what we would charge an average New Yorker buying insurance under Oscar for the first time in March 2013. And um, the plan would start working on January 1st, 2014. And in all of 2014, we couldn't change our rates. This doesn't work like Uber, where you go into a new city and you say, everybody 30% off. And Surge you know, after three days, you say, exactly, <laughs> after one minute, you change the price, basically. It's not the way healthcare works and insurance works. Neither is the way it should work, by the way. This is the right way to do it, but it's very difficult. That was also, we had to price long before we had any idea of who even shows up in this market. Would we get the bicycle riding, Birkenstock wearing Brooklyn freelancer or, um, you know, people uh, with chronic conditions um, towards the end of their career um, having a set amount of doctors and hospitals that they go to. A very different population there. And um, that is the basic sort of like uh, challenge in any new insurance markets. And it was not going to be any different in the ACA. On top of that, you had the political instability of... Um, you know, I don't have to tell you what's happening in D.C. right now and people fighting about the right approach to healthcare, where um, neither party, I think, necessarily disagreed totally on the merits of the ACA. You know, it was originally a Republican reform. Romney care became Obamacare, basically. But where the political infighting just introduced instability from things like the defunding of certain stabilization programs long after pricing was done, um, the constant sort of like chatter that confused people as to whether the ACA would be around next year and therefore whether they should sign up or not uh, and things like that. And so in the last, I'd say, year and a half, this has gotten to the point where the markets are pretty stable now and also where the players in the markets have understood now how these markets operate. Uh, because the third instability I would say you had in the markets is that the incumbent insurance companies, I don't think knew all that well how to navigate this kind of new markets with the new forces in it. And that is what pushed the incumbents out from the market pretty early on. Mm -hmm. So you're a player in this sector. And do you see a role for Oscar as a corporation to speak out about the politics of this and where U.S. healthcare as a whole system should go? Is there a space for you to do that? Yeah. And we do this, I think, uh, both publicly um, as well as in conversation with um, people on the Hill and um, certainly our regulatory bodies and so on. My overall view is, and we've said this a couple of times also publicly and to people behind the scenes, that healthcare has to get consumerized more. This is not a market where you can just leave, dump the complexity on an individual's shoulders and just say, you figure this out in the way you can maybe buy you know, your own cell phone. It's too complicated for that. You have to have regulatory frameworks in the market that create a level playing fields. Um, things like defined benefits, meaning uh, essential health benefits, meaning 
insurers have to cover certain things, things like um, uh, certain ring fencing around what plans will cost. These are all important elements. You need them. This can't be a free-for-all for sure. So it has to be regulated. But the biggest thing that's got to happen is that every individual in the U.S. has to get a chance to pick their own healthcare, health insurance experience. And that isn't the case right now. Employers should be able to take the pre-tax dollars that they use right now to buy an insurance plan and give them to you as an individual. And then you go and buy the plan that you want, either the employer plan or an individual plan or another plan that you get somewhere else. I think that would um, shift this markets in the way that over time all markets we know today as functioning markets are shifted. Uh, it used to be the case that you know, the corporate chief information officer would buy a bulk of Blackberries or whatever for, or like analog mobile phones for, you know, the people in the company. And um, that isn't the case anymore. Uh, now you buy your own iPhone or Android or whatever else. And that creates this competitive pressure for the entire system that then gets you real value for your money and doesn't allow anyone in the system to hide behind high cost increases, no generation of value and things like that. And in healthcare, I think one of my favorite statistics, I have to put favorite in quotes here, air quotes for sure, is whatever correlation you're trying to find between cost and quality in the system that there is, you can't really find it. When you look at physicians in a city, and we have our own metrics for that, and you rank them by efficiency, how efficient are they managing a complex episode of care for you, end-to-end, -end, get you healthy from the diagnosis to the endpoints, and you compare them um, on that basis to how well they do it, whether you survey members in terms of how much they like the physician or you look at the outcomes, there never is much of a correlation. If you go to an expensive versus a cheap doctor or an expensive versus a cheap hospital, you have an equal probability of the care being good or bad and you remember experience being good or bad. Uh, and you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at, um, again, the DFSs, that's the regulatory body in New York, uh, own studies. They published one in 2016 where they looked at exactly that data. No correlation there. Uh, the same is true for drug costs, for medical equipment. Cost doesn't equal quality um, in healthcare. And if there isn't a better sign that there isn't really an efficient market in the system, it's really, yeah, that, that's the sign. Really. That's got to change. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Mario Schlosser, co-founder and CEO of Oscar. Several of the Democrats who have announced their intention to run for president have signed on or, or, or said they're interested in Medicare for all. And it's not always clear exactly what they mean by that or if they all mean the same thing by that or different things by that. What are your feelings about what you understand to be or what you've heard about Medicare for all and how that maybe would affect Oscar if it were to happen? Yeah. Um, I think if somebody invented a healthcare system that gives everybody universal coverage, at um, very high efficiency with good outcomes and everybody's covered and doesn't pay through the nose, I would gladly transition everything over to it. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't care what role Oscar plays in it. I'm serious about this. I think it'd be such a monumental societal outcome. It'd be fantastic. The reality is that uh, there isn't such a system in the world. Um, there are different approaches and they all have their pluses and minuses. There are only that I know of two true single-payer systems where the government owns and operates the healthcare system 
for everybody in the market, that's Canada and the UK. Uh, those have pretty decent cost outcomes, but they aren't seen as the best quality systems in the markets. Other systems are more hybrids, where the government makes sure everybody has coverage, but where public and private insurers and hospitals can play in the markets, um, have about the same cost outcomes, and uh, actually about the same, if not better, quality outcomes. That's the case of Switzerland, Germany, um, Singapore, other states like that. And so in my view, I think if you can create a system where you create a good level playing field for private companies on the care delivery sides, doctors, hospitals, on the risk-taking sides, insurance companies, to show up and operate in the markets, and um, you then make sure everybody can afford healthcare. It's the best mix of, on the one hand, making sure you've got coverage. And on the other hand, you don't take the entrepreneurship out of the system entirely. That's the best way to do it. And in the US, I think the sort of like best A-B test for that, the best natural experiment we have for this is Medicare versus Medicare Advantage. Medicare is the government-run insurance for people over 65. Medicare Advantage is the same markets, but run by private insurance companies. And there's a lot of evidence now that um, Medicare Advantage costs on average are about 10% lower so uh, than the commensurate Medicare government-run plans at the same time. So um, it just goes to show that if you go into these markets and you let some private entrepreneurship bloom, you can take cost out and you can get more satisfaction, better outcomes into these markets. Medicare Advantage plans have high satisfaction scores, uh, and some people generally like being in them, and more and more of the market's been shifting into Medicare Advantage. Now about, I'd say, 40% of uh, coverage in the U.S. is in Medicare Advantage in these markets. So to me, I think when people say Medicare for all, the part I agree with is the part that says we want to have coverage for everybody, and the government's got to play a role in, if necessary, subsidizing that, and should play a role in making sure people are really getting coverage. I believe in Switzerland, if you go to the Swiss DMV to renew your driver's license and they then see you don't have insurance coverage, you're not going to get your driver's license renewed unless you then buy insurance coverage. That is a reasonable way of actually managing the healthcare system, making sure the health, the pool of people in the in the markets is, um, is universal and uh, both healthy and sick people equally contribute to the pool that then pays for everybody. So that part I agree with uh, in the discussion we're having, the part I don't agree with is to switch the entire thing over to a government-run system. And there's a very simple argument for it, which is that if you switched a system over into the government's hands that right now costs us 18% of GDP, you have two choices. Either you raise taxes, a crazy amount for this, to pay for that, or you undo what's most off in the US versus other countries which is unit costs for doctors and hospitals. And if you took those down to where they are in, let's say, Germany, Switzerland, Singapore, you would instantly bankrupt half of the healthcare system. And so both of these avenues are fool's errands. Um, and the best way, I think, to think about this is actually in the way that the ACA, Medicare Advantage, other systems like that try to do it and um, I think need lots of fixing for sure but are a pathway towards. 
you mentioned your co-founder, Josh Kushner, and and he's the brother of Jared Kushner, who's the president's son-in-law and is in the administration. So that could create at least the appearance of a potential conflict of interest. What can you tell us about how you navigate that? Yeah, I think um, we um, never had any, inter- any interactions that were fueled in any way by that relationship. Uh, we were out there, I think, quite vocally before the election 2016 about what we think healthcare should look like, and we were saying the same things afterwards. Um, when someone on Capitol Hill, for example, a senator or a House member, asks us uh, to tell our story about how what we did in healthcare, what data flow we see that suggests we are doing something smart and better. Um, we're happily telling that story. Um, but we never once try to leverage any kind of relationship there um, in any particular way. Uh, obviously, I think that's the initial attitudes coming out of the administration weren't exactly pro-ACA either. So uh, we try to really out there telling the story in a very neutral way, why we think and what the data is that we see that the reform made sense and has elements of it being the right reform. How do you market? Uh, I've seen your advertisements, the New York City subways. Where? What's your marketing philosophy? Where are you getting the most bang for your marketing buck? Definitely the New York subway. Is, it, is that right? <laughs> yeah. We were, I think we were the first ones really among tech companies, I would say, that's um, put ads in the subway. And in 2013, it wasn't really all that popular just yet. You had sort of like... Uh, dermatologists and um, companies like that and people like that advertising the subway at the time. Now it's like every direct-to-consumer, Casper Mattresses, Warby Park, it's all these uh, direct-to-consumer like hot new tech companies are the ones that are advertising there. exactly right. That wasn't really the case back then. And for us, the motivation for that was basically that um, we thought, uh, I should remember this too, we had a a board meeting in 2000, mid-2013. We told our investors, hey, we're going to put ads in the subway. And they totally flipped the switch. They they were super mad at us and saying, why are you spending money there? You know, it got to be all digital. Out of home is crazy. It's old fashioned. Um, you can't track the performance there and things like that. And the hunch we had was that if you just see an ad online for Oscar and we're asking you to buy into this totally novel insurance company with, with zero members at the time, uh, you just wouldn't trust us early on. And we felt in a way that if you saw an out-of-home ad in something as old-fashioned as the New York subway, you would think, oh, these guys must have their act together and I'm going to trust them. And I think it actually became true. I think um, being in out in a mix of out-of-home digital has been to this day the the plan we've had in, in the marketing on the marketing side. And to this day, when we go into new cities, we pick a mix of online and, and offline and some radio and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that's been a been a good mix. Okay, we're going to go to our lightning round. Okay. Are you ready? <laughs> Are there any books or movies that you have found useful in informing your management style, how you deal with people? Okay, I'm going to try to think of my favorite books from early in my life. One book I loved, and to this day I come back to reading at least once every couple of years, is a German book called Die Unendliche Geschichte von Michael Ende. Can you translate? <laughs> it's, a, it's, um, it's The Never-Ending Story. I think there's a movie actually. Oh, I know the movie. Sure, yeah. It's a very sprawling, almost wacky fantasy book. Um, And uh, I just love the unbelievable imagination of the guy who wrote it. And to me, it always made me think, um, like the beauty of the ideas and of the the journey he describes there through this fantasy lands 
was always encouraging in me thinking I can try to do something interesting as well and something that has elegance in its approach and in the problems it tries to solve. And so that's just an inspiring book that I like to really pick myself up. Okay. Meetings. Are you pro or con? How do you do meetings at Oscar? So we definitely have meetings. <laughs> we... Um, we're a totally open plan workspace. I don't have an office by myself. I just have a desk. Uh, I do have a standing conference room that I can go into and take for meetings. I think that the meetings I like the most are the ones where somebody goes up to the whiteboards and draws something on it. That's a very simple metric for the ones I like. Um, I think we generally are always tempted to have too many meetings and too many PowerPoint slides or now Google Doc slides. Uh, and it's a big tendency we got to always counteract. Uh, so I think uh, any time you're in a room where some new idea comes out, it was time well spent. Anytime you're in the room where you just reported something out, not sure we had to do it. If I fired you tomorrow and you could never do anything entrepreneurial again, you can't be an executive, you can't start a new company, just nothing related to what mm -hmm. you're doing now or have done in your life, what would you do with your life instead? Um, I think I would try to write a movie script. <laughs> and I think that sounds very preposterous because I probably would be very bad at it. <laughs> but um, if I look at, uh, like certainly as a, as a founder and now a CEO, the worst thing of my day is the fact that um, if I have more than, I don't know, half an hour to try to be creative and really think through something, it's already kind of an aberration. And um, therefore, one of the feats of human endeavor that I admire the most is people who can sit in a room all day long and just be creative and force themselves to write something. And um, then hopefully it's even good. And so I would love to do that. I just am blown away by, I don't know, the complexity of films like Inception and stuff like that. And would love to write something like that. What genre would your script be? I guess that it would be the uh, sort of sci-fi, futuristic, fantasy, imaginative genre. I would try to work some actuarial science into <laughs> a novel idea. <laughs> that yeah. would probably be very boring, but maybe that's... <laughs> it would definitely be new. <laughs> An actuary action movie. I like yeah, that idea. Something like that. <laughs> Mario Schlosser, CEO and co-founder of Oscar, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. That's our show for today. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews. TJ Raphael is the senior producer for Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. If you like us, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.